Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you're all enjoying listening and reading. Uh, just recently, one of my articles came out in PLSN for the back page for the LD at Large. And I ended up in a, in a fairly long discussion about it because I had uh, I set out a very, uh, what I think to be an interesting article about how we should all kind of keep an eye on our money these days and how we should do our very best to keep a, rain, uh, a rainy day fund available because clearly uh, should this happen again, which I, I think it will, I think we will be in another quarantine or isolation situation in our lifetime that we should, we should have more than three months set aside. Uh, somebody came to me and I said, well, why don't you tell people that they should learn skills outside of our industry? And my response was, cause I don't want people to go out of our industry. I want people to be in our industry. I want them to, to be able to do what they love and what they enjoy and what we've all spent our entire lives honing our craft to do. And so I, I kind of got into that discussion and the way I responded was that I want people to be diversified in our industry. I don't want them to be diversified. I, I mean, I, obviously I want everybody to have a plan B, C and D, but I, I feel like our industry is large enough and diverse enough that you can have a plan A, B and C in our industry. So I thought today would be a really good day to continue that conversation with somebody who, who shares my my views on that one and has kind of refused to become pigeonholed in our industry, meaning that you don't have to be attached to just rock and roll or just lighting or the corporate world. You can, you can kind of thrive and excel in each one in your own right, because they all rely on the same principles. We're just making people look great and making atmospheres for people to connect so I hope that you will uh, enjoy my guest today. His name is John Ozzy Osborne. He is in Madera, California right now, and he is the lighting designer at Austerity Lighting. Thank you so much for joining me today, Ozzy. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, so I've followed your career for quite a while. And uh, what, as I mentioned in the intro, you have never really been pigeonholed. You have been all over the industry. You've done concerts, including Stevie Wonder, Diana Ross, Anita Baker. You've done corporate events uh, for things like Nike. You've done Super Bowl halftime shows, Special Olympics. Uh, there, it's impossible to say that you're in any one niche in the market. Was that by design or did you just keep saying yes to different options? I was trained as a director at, at university and, and uh I just had lousy lighting designers doing my show. So I ended up doing the lighting for them. And I ended up going to LA and there was no way I was gonna be a director in LA with, with what I had, but I, I um, went down and got a job at uh, 
with George Gray at uh, Stun Dan uh, Sundance Lighting, right? And uh, we went out with John Denver and the uh, Sundance collapsed. <laughs> so uh, when we, and but John Denver said he would cover us for the rest of the tour. And, and so when I came back, I went, I have no one to call. I, I know no one really. And so somebody said, well, go to Tasco, you know? And so you just did 44 shows in the round, you know, and they do Diana Ross. So, you know, so I, I went to Tasco and of course, Terry and, uh, you know, sort of screams at me, you know, and says, tell him to get the fuck out of here, you know? And so I, I leave and I'm walking into the parking lot and then he chases and he says, so what did you really want? And I said, uh, well, I was, kind of interested in getting a job i just came back from john denver and uh, uh you know I, and so he goes oh fine well go to the shop we'll see what we can do so i was hired then and and then as a, what i what i realized was is that is that you know, this is before cell phones and all the connectivity that we have today you know and so when i came back from a tour diana Ross was doing a lot of like three-week legs and then off for a month or two that i just didn't have anybody to call or whatnot you know and so as I met people, I, I didn't care what they did. You know, this person did, you know, benefits and that, or they did, you know, little bands or whatever they did, I would just write down their numbers. So when I would come home, I would then have three or four people I could call. And in those days, you just had to sit by the phone, you know? I mean, now, you know, I mean, you just go to the golf course, they call you on the 11th hole and you go, yeah, fine, you know, but it, but before, I mean, it was literally agonizing. It was probably the most agonizing thing about it was, you know, not knowing where your next gig was going to come from or, you know, when they were going to call or, you know, I mean, all those sort of things. So I think that sort of began to drive it. And then as I became more successful, um, there was a good friend of mine. He was the uh, Verilite operator named C.D. Simpson on uh, Bowie in 83. And, um, and he had this philosophy that he was going to, he would take the $1,000 job and I would take four $250 jobs. And it was, it was, it was a definite philosophy, but see, once again, I ended up with three or four phone numbers and he only ended up with one, you know? And so that sort of began to drive me into this multi thing. And plus as a director, as a storyteller per se, and, and, in everything that I do there. I mean, I sort of frame it that way that, that it's some sort of journey and I'm gonna take these people on these, this journey and I wanna direct them in a certain way. And then to do that with focus and lighting. And so it, it made sense to me that, that I could just take whatever I took and then and bring those skills and then hone those skills in all the different uh, areas. So I don't know. So you started on John Denver, was that what brought you into the industry? Did you want to be like a rock and roll lighting roadie? Absolutely Was that not. I, due to some personal things, <laughs> <laughs> I ended up going to Los Angeles and opened up the Yellow Pages. And I saw this thing called Sundance Lighting. I had heard of it before. I put on a coat and tie. I walked in the door. George Gray <laughs> was behind the desk. Uh, it was 10 o'clock in the morning. And he and I tried to get a job. And he said, when can you go to work? And I said, well, I mean, I'm out of work. I mean, you know, I didn't have anything. And he said, all right, 11 o'clock. Get out of that suit. I came back and, <laughs> and began to pull four out and do all the shit jobs in the shop and peel tape off cable and hot up, you know, things like that. And, and that was kind of, you know, I mean, I started at the bottom and then by, hmm, what did I do? I, you know, it's probably, 
uh, what was it? Elvira. The first show I did was Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Nice. Um, at, for a Halloween show down by LAX. And uh, <laughs> I thought I was really doing good. I mean, I had to drive the bobtail there and stuff, you know. Well, I find out that this, you know, the guy that was actually sort of designing it had gotten a DUI. And so they really just hired me to drive the truck. But in the end, I ended up actually kind of doing a lot of the shows. So, and, and a few weeks later, I, you know, I mean, they, they wanted to know if I wanted to go out as the bottom guy on uh, John Denver. And uh, I said, yeah, yeah. And he turned out, if I had known what I know now, I, I don't think I'd change anything, but, but he was the nicest person to tour with in my 40 years, by far. He sounds he like a nice guy. He was just charming. I mean, we had, we had a, I was, uh, had been digging through. I didn't realize I could be, I could be one of those uh, shows about a hoarder. Well, I didn't okay. know this until COVID came and I began to go through my garage and my boxes. And if I went into my living room right now, you will find almost 700 t-shirts. I have cataloged in binders in the last 11 or 12 months, everything that you could ever imagine. I mean, I have every sticker from Bowie, every backstage pass, every laminate, 51 shirts, uh, signed programs, uh, posters, large posters, signed posters by Bowie and Frampton. Uh, and then it goes on. And then I have another giant table full of 60 or 70 with 23 years with Diana Ross. I mean, I have a box the size of whatever. And that's all t-shirts and, and memorabilia. And then I have another box that will have all of her programs or signatures or, or photos, all of her backstage passes, all of her laminates. And that goes on for every act, whether it's Anita Baker or Stevie Wonder or John Denver or Luther Vandross or oh, Duran Duran or Power Station or whatever. And I became this incredible hoarder without knowing it. And I now, I've, like I said, I've probably done close to 5,000 uh scans and in into the thing and now i took my 38 tour jackets and got those out and then i got these over 700 t-shirts that i'm working on right now which i haven't cataloged yet but there's some really fun ones and they bring back memories i mean i have one from heart or or omd or the go-go's or i mean all the little shows that i just completely forgotten about that were so much fun so anyway so i'm sort of in a crazy place and and uh but I think the coolness factor there separates you from being a hoarder. I think I think the better term would be an archivist. I think you've actually archived all that stuff. I don't think you've hoarded it because that's all yeah, I mean, very I mean, cool to stuff. To the point where after the show, the next day, like on Bowie, we would go and get the paper, you know, or and I mean, I have newspapers from almost every place in Europe or or Southeast Asia or whatever with Bowie on the cover or that or you know a, a review of the show or whatever. I mean, I have all of those that I'm trying to put into these wrap things and uh you know it just goes on and on and on oh, oh i have all the man, guitar is, picks from treasure. all the players you know and it's fun i mean I, it's uh really so when you said that i want to do a podcast i said man i've been thinking about my life you know a life well lived i might add uh in in by having to do all not having to do but what else was i going to do you know uh then go back i just didn't realize that i'd done it to the extent that i'd done it you know, there's literally, I mean, I have meal tickets from Sweden or something, you know, I mean, just silly stuff. Oh, that just man, has no, that is so cool. 
it's just ridiculous. So anyway, I, I have most of it, Kel. I'll send you a couple of uh, links or something that you can sort of see some of it. Cause it's if, sort of... if nothing else, that is one of the, the few benefits of this uh, isolation period is that, you know, you and I, people like you and I would never take this time off voluntarily. Mm. You know, we, we really, we literally have to be forced into taking this amount of time off. Yeah, no, I, I never thought, I mean, I figured they'd carry me away in an ambulance. And, and uh, so I never thought really of retiring. And then this was sort of a re forced retirement, which is making me dig into my retirement funds a little bit, but, but that's okay. Um, but it's, I, I, you know, I had a choice a year ago. I mean, I, my last paycheck was uh, February 4th, 2000. I mean, it arrived. I did, I'd done CES. I think the check arrived February 4th. 2020. So I'm now at 15 months, 16 months without a paycheck. Um, oh, and I had man. a choice. What was I going to do? So I, I began to do this sort of all the collections. At first, I thought, well, I'll just sell it all or something. You know? But then it just became so I talked to some people about it. And they went, well, you need to get all of it. Well, I realized that I was not very good at storing it. I mean, I put four Bowie things in this four Diana Ross, a couple of these, a couple. And it was just box after box. And I had, oh, I don't know almost 8,000 square feet of boxes, you know? Oh, wow. It's just overwhelming. But they kept saying, well, do you have anything else? And then, oh, I got all these pins that they gave us or scarves or, or guitar picks or whatever. Well, we need to see everything. So I keep going back and getting more boxes and opening another box. And, and uh, see, each one so is a memory, you know? I mean, each one is a really cool memory of, of, of something that happens. Those are so tough because we, we, we start to, for us, we mix up the ones from the rock and roll and the cool events with the, the less cool events. And we get the, the laminates from the CESs, which, which nobody really cares about outside our industry. We, we, we love them because they're a paycheck and we love seeing our friends, but <laughs> you know, outside of us, nobody cares, you know, but if you put, if you attach a David Bowie or a, a, a right, right, Baker, yeah. then people are like, Oh man, that's cool. Well, I found 64, which I can't look, um, laminates, uh, lanyards, I mean, lanyards of, um, of, of uh, uh, my 18, well, actually 19 years with Sony PlayStation. So I have all the ones from my first <laughs> one I ever got, which is, a, which is a PS1 sort of, you know, to the two, to the launch of the VR, to the 20 year anniversary. Well, there's 67 of them when I finally got through it. And they mean nothing oh. to anybody else, but to me, it shows this whole thing, you know. And, and I actually stand corrected. That is pretty cool. I, that is a that's a very cool collection. Thinking of like how far we've come, even with video games from the PS PS One to I think we're at five now. Five, yeah. We're at the my my daughter works for uh, PlayStation, so uh, wow. She's, she's got a five. I don't, but. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but she's got it here and you know and so the kids the grandkids are here and we've got good video games so you also you went to school for lighting so you would always plan to be in the lighting field you just didn't know which which no genre, I, I you know that's I, I went to school um because it was fun and i could party you know? <laughs> uh well i did it for like eight years so you know i mean i, I mean i got my degrees and stuff but it was like i had 172 <laughs> credits when i when i went down to la you know so that's probably why he thought i was qualified enough to do four out you know um <laughs> i think that's what it was worth oh look at my you know 
but no, actually, I became I was really into directing and 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 I did a lot. I did the uh, Valley premiere of uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, and I did Oliver with a cast of 119 people and all these little kids running around, and and then I started doing operas and at Bear Valley or whatnot, and and like I said, I just never was happy. I think it was a Tennessee Williams play, um, Summer and Smoke or something. I, uh, and there was all these night scenes and they, they just kept screwing it up, you know? And so I would go around in my head because emotionally I wanted to show that it was dark and they were in this park or something. And as a director, I wanted to see their expressions and what the hell they were doing, you know? And so it was just really I was just slapping myself trying to put on the hat as the lighting designer that wanted it to be this environmentally beautiful nighttime scene and the director that wanted it. So I, I began to balance and, and figure out um, seeing the picture as Alan Branton used to say, you know, he would go, well, just look at the picture us as, as he eventually uh, turned over Diana Ross in it. And, but I, I didn't get it. And then when I, was doing a bunch of shows at once and I needed to turn a show over. I would, you know, do all the notes, blah, 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 blah. I would turn it over and then I would fly back out a month later or six weeks and it would just look like shit. And I'm like going, are you looking at this? I mean, it's, she's two and a half stops above everybody else or she's below everybody else. Or, you know I mean? It's just, it was just unbelievable. And so I realized that it, it either you can see the picture or you can't right i mean that's what makes really good lighting designers is that but it's but it's like you know i mean either you can play guitar or you can't you know i mean or or whatever but i mean it, it's not a better thing it's just something that i'm able to do but i didn't realize that that was unique or a, a niche right to be able to see a picture and until i had two different people i'm not never going to name them really just not see the picture. I then began to understand what he was talking about, you know, to sit back. And so that sort of drove me, and I know I'm, I'm a rambler, uh, but, but it sort of drove me into when I had the choice of continuing as a board op, which I was not very good at, or have board operators. And because I, I, I used to think as a sports analogy that I wanted to dribble with my head up. So I wanted to be the one that was constantly looking at the stage picture and the board op can be over there. And then, you know, and so I love that collaboration that goes on there, but as well as the fact that I can see, you know, what I'm not buried down here. I'm not in a different place. I'm not trying to remember. I am just looking at that picture and making sure that it's communicating whatever it is, you know, whether it's corporate, whether it's music, whether art, whatever, that's, you know, that's kind of where I sort of went. And I, I sometimes like, when you were talking about that A, B, and C, yeah, I, I wish now that I had probably at least continued to be okay on boards because I could have done a lot of different things when it slowed down or other times when it's sort because when you get into doing pretty big stuff, you know, it's not like, so when it gets dead, you know, it's, it's gotta be a pretty good sized project for me to be doing it. And therefore, you know, there's probably six weeks where it's got to be planned out. I mean, it's all that kind of stuff that that happens. Mm -hmm. So it's not like I can go down to the local casino and run, uh, you know, Hootie and the Blue Blowfish or something. You know, it's like. But no, anyway. that's. Uh... 
Although I'd that like happens. to, he's a good golfer. So <laughs> that happens when we become established. There's, there's some things that, yeah, you know, I like to think that I would still, I would still do anything, but sometimes there's like, no, you just can't, can't be motivated to go do that. Even though uh, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. You know, I don't have, I have a friend that has a lighting company live light down the road here a, a little bit. And, uh, uh, he'll call me in and I'll go in and I, you know, I don't care. I mean, I, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll still climb at 69 years of age and, you know, do all of that. And, uh, and it sort of brings me back and, and uh, I sort of enjoy it. I, I don't do, I, I shouldn't say I go up anymore on rigs. I mean, I did fall in 87 and break my back. So, uh, but I climbed for years and years and years after that. But uh, now I've just, my upper body strength, you just don't, you know, it's just not the same. And you're, you're, you never learn. We were, we're always invincible. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you wouldn't be a lighting guy. You'd be a sound guy if you didn't think you were. <laughs> Don't you think? I mean, you know, I mean, what, what, what separates us? Yeah. Half if of you, us if smoke you, and sound guys don't smoke. And, if you're happy uh, with everything. You might as well be a sound guy because you're just yeah, throwing exactly. up everything. You're just miserable all the time. So when did you first realize you're like, hey, I have pretty good taste like people seem to agree with me that what i think looks good they also think looks good <laughs> i don't know that i ever did um <laughs> I won't, let me let me vary off on this because I've, I've only really been i've only really you could say i got fired or i quit one of the two uh, okay. of one job of the hundreds and hundreds of different jobs in all the different areas uh and I was working for Party Planners West, and, I, and we were we were doing all of these uh, grand benefits and Escalapian balls and things like that, and raising money for you know whatever. And uh, and the owner of the company, uh, well, let, let me go back just for a second because it was really okay. fabulous. I just come off tour with Anita Baker, I think, and um, and somebody called me and. Um, said would I do this whatever some benefit it uh, it was one of the sound stages at at, at uh, Paramount and I said sure sure sounds great so I meet these people and I go in and uh, you know they, they spent you know five thousand dollars on lighting and twenty five thousand dollars on flowers but you know I mean they spent a hundred thousand dollars on light but they spent more on flowers always for every gig I ever did they spent more money on orchids and flowers and centerpieces and you know, I mean, it was just crazy. And, and uh, you could, you could, you could light Elton John with, with 24 pars, right? Absolutely. Right? You know, I mean, it was like, well, okay. Uh, which is a true story. <laughs> it was like, you're kidding me, really? Well, we need more money for, for decorations. And, you know, yeah. We want to, we want to put branches and stuff through the ceiling, you know, it's like, okay. So, um, to make a long story endless, really, which is one of my favorite expressions because I do it all the time. Uh, I, I I built all these looks, you know, and, and I was so thrilled, you know. And and of course, they came in and they said, well, and I went, you know, and I punched through some looks and they kind of looked at me funny. And then they said, stop. And, I, and they went, uh, yeah. Okay, that's it. Well, I just come off a tour that I'd built 800 looks for Anita Baker. And they wanted one. 
I thought, Jesus, this is the best gig ever, you know? <laughs> I mean, maybe at, you know, some movie premiere I'm doing, I get to use three, you know, maybe some soft morphing thing or something, you know, but, but it was like, wow, really? You mean I didn't have to stay up all night and program all these looks? <laughs> you wanted one? So I, I did a number of shows from him. I did all the APLA stuff with uh, Jean-Paul Gaultier and Calvin Klein and, you know, uh, these fat, great fashion shows with great talents like Madonna and, and Tina Turner and all these people. And those I got, when we were doing the musical things, I got to be, go back and be a musical guy. But the, basically the look was the look, you know? And uh, so, but... She had a she had the vice president of the company, and I really got along really really well. And he would later go to Merv Griffin, and I would go off with him to Merv Griffin Productions because she I could go in and I would make five looks, and I would tell everyone I'd say, okay, this is this is look one, this is the best look, this is look two, this is the second best look, and this is down to where there's a shit look number five. Right? She would pick the shit look every time. <laughs> right and I, I i could not i it was just killing me i mean normally i mean you know when you're doing a a, a tour or something and you're working with the artist and you turn around and go um which is funny i sometimes people i, I saw people arguing with the artist and i'm thinking wait a minute the artist wants it to look this way on one cue you've got 700 more cues that you get to win on what the hell are you doing arguing about this one cue? You know, I mean, that's an ego that I don't even want to deal with. You know, I mean, get rid of that guy. I, it's just unbelievable. So I always, so I was never, I mean, that's why I got along with all these uh, artists really well, because, I, you know, they wanted something, you know, I mean, and to even divert more over, just to make this really difficult on you. People used to say to me, well, how hard is it to do lighting for a blind guy when I was with Stevie Wonder for 10 years? <laughs> and the truth of the matter is it was the hardest in some ways because with David Bowie or Diana Ross or anyone else, Luther, especially, um, you could pull them out into the audience. You could have their, their dresser hold up their dress or, or, and, and see the scene, you know, um, and be fine. But with, with Stevie, Everyone, Calvin, his brother, or Milton, or the Charlie, the production guy, or whoever the tour manager was at the time. I mean, they all would come to me privately and go, hey, I'm the eyes of Stevie Wonder. You know, <laughs> I think um, this is what we ought to be doing. So we're at, I'm at the Budokan and, um, in Tokyo, and uh, we're doing like three nights there. I got so many stories. I, I don't even know where to go. But anyway, we're at the Budokan, and they start coming up to me in the middle of the show right and it's 1987 maybe and so it's still uh it's still you're you're calling follow spots and someone else is relaying that information to the spot operators mm -hmm. you know in, in those days it was it was really god sorry i just went off on another direction it was really the funniest spot to call but anyway um and they just kept coming after me so i just threw the headsets up and went to the dressing room right? and they came screaming at me in the dressing room you have to go back right i mean this time i'm still running the board <laughs> like just left it on a chase and walked away and uh i said i don't care and after the show i said i don't care 
I'll take all your suggestions. I'll take all of that stuff in, but you cannot do it in the middle of a show, you know? No, no, and, you're absolutely they, right. And, but they wouldn't get that. And so finally they got it when I handed them the headset and said, take over. I was Duran Duran Osaka. And uh, I was calling the spots and uh, it was a... Uh, Andy Taylor was going to do this guitar solo. And I, you know, I said, you know, spot five and a frame three or something, you know, and go. And it didn't happen. And so I'm like, oh, spot five, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just screaming, you know, go, go again, whatever. And then I shut up, throw my hands down, you know, my hands in my head. And I hear, and instantly it came on, you know. So they're so polite. They wouldn't interrupt me. <laughs> to interpret what it was they just let me rant and rave and as soon as i stopped they immediately politely told the spot up where to go and you know and he got it just about at the end of the uh, solo but you know. <laughs> i have one other i mean yeah i could I, yeah let's just bounce so yeah. i'm in um oslo and we're in this theater and we're in like a, a, a classic theater booth and uh Diana Ross, I think. And and so I've got, I'm calling the spots and I, I get distracted by something. I, it, I, the board was in Swedish or something. And um, I, I call it and nothing happens. Nothing happens. And finally, the sound guy goes, hey, you're talking into the light. You know, the mini light <laughs> on top of the board. They had me on, they had me on a, a, you know, one of those mic sort of things, you know, and I'd gone away <laughs> from the mic the and light. onto the mini light and I'm like calling the stuff and it's not happening. I'm so pissed. <laughs> those are, those are funny. Well, silly. Ball of um, what were we talking about? Oh, oh. So anyway, so I, I, I just couldn't take it anymore. And the final straw was, we, I really was doing Elton John with 24 um, pars and it was, I don't know why, but it was some sort of jungle scene. And they'd put in, you know, probably 500 pounds of trees and bushes through the entire giant tent. You know, it was like a 120 by 200 tent, you know, thousand dollar plate sort of thing. Okay. Um, and, uh, and she said, well, you can't use red. It's going to, okay. it's going to look Christmassy with all of my plants and stuff. I said, well, you can't tell me that I can't use red in with with just pars on a on a rock star, you know. I don't want to take that out of my palette, you know. But yeah, that's one of the I said, colors you know, that we is, have. I, I said, I am going to go through this and I think we will part ways here. But that was the only time I ever I've done everything else. I mean, I I, I always used to say, you know, the kids need new shoes. I would do anything, mm -hmm. you know, take any job. Although somebody there, I mean, I would not take a job with Al Qaeda, but somebody said they'd take any job, even Al Qaeda. I would cut the line off at Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda, I think, you know. But, yeah, you have, you have that's a it's a pretty solid boundary there. It's pretty yeah. I yeah. See that you rest on your on your morals there. <laughs> we all we all have our, our degrees. Mm -hmm. But mine's yeah, very low. I mean, I literally that's I think it's important. Um, Good on you. Just take as many of them as you can. 
Yeah, I'll take money from anybody. I would draw my line at terrorism, too. I will not light for terrorists. Well, there you go. You see, we agree on that. <laughs> I'm sure there's other things we agree on. All right. Uh, that, that's actually a great way to go into the next question. Like, do you, are you picky about your clients? Like, let's say uh, somebody called you up and it wasn't your favorite band. Would you, would you still take it? Yeah, in a heartbeat. Yeah, in a heartbeat. Uh, I mean, I, I I waited three heartbeats, which was sort of silly for the answer. But yeah, I don't. Um, I don't want to say. I, I mean, I've worked for a lot of clients that were not exactly um, easy. You know? Okay. Uh, I mean, some of them have screamed at me from on on stage or something, and my wife's going, "Why? I mean, why do you put up with that?" And I said, "Well, you know." I mean, we wouldn't have a house over our head if I let <laughs> if I let the egos of artists get in the way. I mean, they're just nervous and they're I'm scared, on that one. and you just kind of. So I don't really. Uh, no, I can't think of anything I wouldn't like to do. That is a that's a, a great way to touch on a, a much larger subject: is how we really need to put our egos aside to collect a paycheck. A lot of these artists are not yelling at us. They don't even know our names. Some of the times they just know that something is happening. That they don't like, and they need to yell at somebody. And sometimes I'm, I'm happy to just be there. Yeah. You can yell at me. It, it's really just uh, water off my back. I'm not going to. Yeah, no, me too. Me too. As long as the check. Clears, I mean, don't call me names, but you know, feel free to vent. I'm, I'm here for you. Anita Baker was really funny one time. Um, she had just gone through 23 sound engineers in, in the last four or five weeks or whatever. Um, sometimes two a day, they would fly in sound engineers. And, and sometimes we'd rotate, I shouldn't say we, but the production people would rotate guys that had already been there and stuff. You know, we were running out of people. <laughs> But um, they would her always give me procedure. the assignment of, of having to tell her what was wrong in the day, right? So I would have to go up and say, you know what? You know that beautiful staircase that comes off the back and then we reveal you and you come down the stairs singing, you know, whatever. And, um, well, the theater is only 32 feet deep. So mm, there's no back stairs. You, you're going to have to, like, go on the front and then go down or something, which is going to be really awkward or, you, you know just figure out another time to do it and she scream at the production who the hell you know book this theater and stuff <laughs> but anyway everybody just loved giving it to me um and i was happy with that but um but one day she came in in the middle of her firing episode and said to me get away from me i have my bitch wigs on and i don't want to lose you <laughs> okay and I ran away. <laughs> that's it. That's a proper warning right there. I would I would take heed at that in a moment. Yeah, that's that's very cool. Do you do you have the broad shoulders for that? Or are you are you sort of designed to be able to take that sort of that heat or that flack to are you are you uh oh totally, totally. You thrive I, under that sort of responsibility? I thrive there, yeah. I, I thrive there and I thrive in um in chaos, sort of. So and I and it's really one of the reasons that I, I really enjoyed all my work with with sony playstation and whatnot because that that's although that's changing all the time i mean you you, you could do six weeks of meetings six months of meetings you can turn in your rigging plot a month early for ces and know for a fact 
five days before loading or after the trucks have left yeah they've decided to move you know some huge pro i mean thing in the booth and all this other stuff so and and i always thought that was cool you know i mean it's like i love the challenge and and rather than look at it as is getting pissed or anything it was like okay how can we figure this out i mean i'm i'm very collaborative and that comes from the director in me right so i'm i'm interested mm -hmm. in knowing what's what what are the impacts on the set people what are the impacts on you know as far as their timeline of getting this change done and you know what what, what how does it impact the sound guy where is he going to change his speakers where i'm going to put my lights and all of that mm -hmm. and and uh really enjoy that I, partially because I'm in a role of um, of solving problems and and making sure that I'm happy with the picture versus my you know LD who's got to re you know program all this shit and do all this other things. But uh, I've got uh, I, Scott McCallan does most of my stuff and he's just you know as good as they come and brilliant and and uh, makes me look good more times than I make him look good. So that's cool so, do you find that in the collaboration process you prefer to be a collective decision or do you, do you take it more of an authoritarian rule when it comes to like the final decision hmm. um I, i'm collaborative collective all of that all the way through but um but the buck does stop with me and I'm the one that has to go in and, and meet with the client or I have to go and talk to the producer or whatever. So there, there's that, but it's never a, a personal thing against the person. Okay. Sometimes it's hard with, with certain um, LDs or programmers to, um, uh, I mean, a lot of times you don't have time to explain that yep. you have gone through a whole bunch of stuff and and the client is concerned about and sometimes here's a corporate one sometimes they're concerned about looking too good it might be a company meeting and they don't want them to think that we've wasted money their money that, hey that's our bonus up there right and so the programmer wants to just flatten out you know do this huge opening and i've got to tone him way down you know what i'm saying and so he doesn't understand that politically the bosses are concerned that they're wasting their bonuses. So anyway, that's, that's a pretty good example. I think of. Make us look great, but don't make us look like we've wasted any money. Yeah, make exactly. us look the exact amount. <laughs> make us look financially viable. That please yes, can you make, exactly. can you have that setting on your console, please. Yeah. Turn up the financially viable, please. So we just run the Grandmaster at 80. Um, <laughs> <laughs> everything seems a little muted. Uh, but no, I mean, that's kind of an example of, of, of where that goes, you know. But no, I don't, you know, but but like I said, I mean, I, in the end, uh, I'm the one that's got to defend it. So, but nine out of 10 times, I, I'm thrilled to let Scott just run with it. You know, I mean, just he'll just get off and he just will program brilliant things and then I'll just take credit. So uh, <laughs> that is the benefit of being able to surround yourself with really good characters. Well, I think, you know, people talk about sometimes the nepotism in this building. I mean, in this business, I mean, um, mm -hmm. but I think it's more um, 
cover your ass, I think, is the term that I would use, right? I mean, everybody yeah. down and up, up and down the line is going to hire someone that's going to cover their ass. So if I'm hiring an ME or I'm hiring the, the programmer or, or an LD or whatever, what, what am I really doing? I mean, I want to I want to get out of this alive, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's 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 the primal area, I guess. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. you want to do good work, but at the same time, you don't have the opportunity to do good work unless you, you know, get to a certain level because most clients haven't got a clue what it, what it is you're doing, you know? No, I mean, they, they know they need you. They don't really right. know what, and, but what. they don't really know the difference between all of us, right? We would all right. do this differently. We'd all do it. Well, we'd all build a different picture and, mm -hmm. but they'd see it all as just a quality that's there, you know? So yeah. you kind of, that's, that's a hard thing to fight sometimes. Once again, when I said, I didn't understand that people couldn't see the picture. There's also that same sort of thing that um, event coordinators <laughs> don't see the picture either. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> no, they understand tablecloths and they understand right. table dressings and they understand wait lists and mailing lists and, they, they get to us and they're like, uh, just make it, uh, just match whatever we've done. You're the lighting guy, right? Right. You hear that a lot, don't you? Yeah. You're the lighting guy. Hmm. I, I like the term lighting guy. It's, it's when I get the term AV guy. And then that's when I'm like, you don't know what I do at all. You, you don't understand. Well, because they normally do shows with a black curtain, a projector and, uh, and deal mm -hmm. with the people in the hotel, you know? He's right. called the AV guy. I mean, that's where that comes from. And that's yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. That's uh, nothing against the guy in the hotel because he's making a living that I'm not right now. I mean, he's still working. Damn it. Uh. <laughs> so that that's actually a good way to get into my next question. Do you prefer having full carte blanche creativity, or do you prefer somebody coming to you with a list of specific instructions that you need to follow through and then apply uh, a certain a certain, certain designery touch too. I certainly, you know, I let's look at it two ways. One from an art standpoint, one from a practical standpoint. I love guidelines. I, I, I just, especially, you know, I go back to when we actually drew plots by hand. It was a lot of work. And, and so to do one and then have them say, oh, we can't afford that. And I'm, and I've already asked them, you know, um, what's my budget, right? Mm -hmm. And they go, well, you know, I, I don't know, just design it. So I design it, and then they tell me they can't afford it. So I said, you must have some idea of the budget, if you know that you can't afford that. I said, so I really worked early on and and really pounded on clients to give me a ballpark and guidelines on that sort of thing, so that I was not. But I mean, now, I mean, even then, you don't want to read, you know draft an entire plot you know and so i like those kind of guidelines um i like guidelines of uh no I, you know what any input i get i'm thrilled about and partially because uh it goes back to that uh, why argue about a few cues with a with a performer when you get the other 700 but it mm -hmm. also is that you're you're going to set this whole thing up if you can find five places where the client feels either participatory maybe would be the term or, okay. or, or getting what they want. 
I'm thrilled about that, you know, I mean, because it doesn't have to be about me at all. I, you know, I, that part of it is is also true. I mean, I, I really, I have so many opportunities. I've, I've, I've been given so many and I've had so many opportunities that I feel like I, I, I have a chance, I've, I've had a chance to do pretty much what I've wanted to do for, as an, from an artistic standpoint. And so therefore, That's a good um, I want, I'm, I'm happy to share that I'm, I'm happy to share with my programmer or miami or whoever if they have things that they would like to do or certainly with the client or the producer or whatever um it's fun and and you learn i mean because they they have all kinds of ideas that are crazy or and, and some of them are really good and you know and and we do get locked up i mean somebody would say <laughs> if i've got to do a scramble i use moonscape right and I didn't realize how bad it was until about five lighting companies talked to me and said, you know, we have 185 Moonscape gobos with your name on them here, you know, and, and it was like, and, but I can't find anything else that puts that amount of light out that doesn't look cookie cutter when you, you know, it just works. So I guess if I had something that I didn't realize, but my son, who's a lighting designer goes, are you going to use Moonscape? And, it, and I would never pay any attention to him, but he was taking the piss out of me all the time. So I, I just laugh. <laughs> I mean, I've tried, it's I mean, I've so tried easy. so many different, you know? Yeah. That's why we have to collaborate is because otherwise people like, you know, will get stuck after so right. many times. He's like, well, it works and it works and it works. And then the paycheck's cleared and I used Moonscape again. And it, yeah. yeah, you know, that's why we need somebody else to be like, you know what? That's great. It is working for you, but let's try this. And you're like, yeah, that also works. Good job. Yeah. I, I guess that's how we be, start to develop our friendships. Is really, you know, when people come up with the right ideas enough times, you're like, hey, we kind of have the same, same idea. Let's work together more. Uh, do or think- we don't. Yeah. I, you know, I, when I did... Um- Luther Vandross. I was working with Brad Malkus. Um, and that was a great, great experience because he's fairly persnickety would work. And okay. I'm, I'm free formed, try anything, you know, and Luther's up. Oh, I could tell a Luther story. He gives us 15 days at Target Arena in, in uh, Minneapolis. Nice. With, no, 14 days. But and I have, and I'm calling 15 spots and it's this huge rig and Morpheus brings the rig out and it's in the round and um, who is it? Jeremy Railton. I think Railton's designed this beautiful set in the round the steps and everything. And uh, so we get to like the first day or something. And what he likes to do is he puts his uh, choreographer on the stage and then he Although the bottom of his, he did, did. the bottom of his shoes never saw daylight, but he would get up about, you know, 15 rows into the theater and watch, right? And then he would want us to program like one song, you know, and then we'd stay up all night programming the song. I mean, it was a very tough deal. But he had the best eye of any person I have ever worked with. I'm doing um, Duran Duran and they put us in somewhere up in uh, like Syracuse, New York at some racetrack. And it's sort of a really rowdy, kind of crazy, sloppy sort of thing, you know. And and so I said, you know, I think I'll just run the lights from stage left or something. 
well, actually stage right. Okay. And uh, had never done it. And so I, I, uh, I mean, the first song started and I absolutely panicked. I mean, I jumped down off the stage. I ran around. I looked and it looked perfect. I ran back did the next cue or whatever. You know, the next song happened. I mean, I'm, I'm just, and I'm realizing, oh my God, no wonder this was 84. And I, you know, I, no wonder artists say such strange things to me sometimes or you know diana would go i don't feel that or whatever i mean i'm like going yeah because it doesn't look anything correctly you know i mean it just doesn't feel the same it doesn't look the same um and so that was really helpful to me I, you know to, to, as i learned to have a, a a communication with the artists from then on because I, I realized how limited they were. And that's how I really started dragging them out front to look because I, mm -hmm. I was shocked that I didn't see it that way. But anyway, I, I digress. Where were we? We were doing. Um... No, that's actually really important. I like, I, uh, I love a good gobo that's in focus and then do like a zoom chase with it looks really cool from front of house. The first time I had, I left one of those running and I went on stage myself. It was, it was very distracting. <laughs> and, I, and now I get it like, Oh, that is, that's really distracting. It's hard it looks to, cool from out front. It looks so cool. Yeah. It's something that we have to do sometimes. We have to just put ourselves aside and go, Let, let's see it from your angle. And they're like, Oh man, that is, you know, with, with two spotlights in your eyes and uh, the entire floor moving like, like the ocean. You know, like, yeah, that's, that's pretty difficult. <laughs> Sorry to put you through that. <laughs> I'm going Perfect. to put you through that, but. <laughs> Perfect. I forgot where we were. I, you know, I'm always going to get distracted. One thing uh, reminds me of another thing. I should just do a book and then you could just look at that. No, oh, I would totally read that book. You know who, um, who wrote a great book, Tana Douglas. It's called Loud. She is the first female roadie from Australia. And, um, actually was it's just if you want a good book about what it was like from 1978 to 1995 in the touring industry and what it was exactly it is the most accurate thing i've ever read it's got accolades coming on it but uh she was just fabulous she was a great uh i mean she could climb she could you know she got mad she just sort of punched the stagehand in the nose sort of that was that australian in her i think but right on. Uh, she was terrific, and, and the book is absolutely, I can't say enough good things about it. It's called Loud, L-O-U-D. I will Tana definitely check that Douglas. out. And, uh, yeah, I okay. mean, to, for me, to see back, you know, we all have these versions of what it was, you know what I mean? So if you're late 70s or something, you know, you've got all these English production managers that think that the way to solve problems is screaming. So basically the 80s were just, a, they just screamed at you all the time. You know, mm -hmm. by the 90s, it, it, it had changed considerably and we became much more grown ups. And that could have been just a lack of cocaine. I, I'm not sure, you know, but um, I, I think that had, you know, that Greyhounds and cocaine probably had a lot to do why why these uh, production managers were screaming at us. But yeah, there you go. you've got a few years on me. And uh, my wife, when we first met, she thought that the roadie that my roadie lifestyle was the same as your roadie lifestyle. And, and they weren't the same. I started in the two thousands and uh, it was not, it wasn't quite the same then here. Uh, the, the roadie reputation preceded you. 
No, you know, I, it, it radically does. And that's one of the things I, I, that I really liked about her book is it reminded me because you can sort of see that progression as it goes away. Part of it, mm -hmm. it was two things that happened. I mean, um, a lot of the, I mean, AIDS was a, was a big deal, you know, I that mean, was a it big really deal. stopped a lot of the sex, drugs and rock and roll and, and just indiscriminate craziness. Uh, and then basically they turned over, this was really sad, but they turned over the tours to accountants. Yep. So in the, when I started, God, I mean, when I did Boeing 83, I mean, I got, I came home after that tour and bought a new, with my bonus, I bought a new Thunderbird turbo, you know, I mean, it, mm -hmm. and you got bonuses and you had all these different things and, and it was really fun and, and, and you know, the artists would rent out movie house. I mean, they do all these crazy things and it was really, you were all kind of a family sort of thing. And then when the, uh, you know, the, the accountants got in it, then it just became this business, you know, and it was like, duh, 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 duh. And I think the yeah, artists we felt it as well. I mean, it, so, so I went through that and then basically I got, I, you know, I, I stopped. Well, I was fortunate to, to, um, to, get hired by a guy named Monty House, but um, uh, Dave Rickenbach, uh, Rickenbach and Associates out of San Francisco, um, who I would consider a, a mentor. My main mentor would have been Alan Branton, but um, Branton basically made my career. There's no question about that. Uh, but Dave Rickenbach um, also, I mean, he hired me for Disney and Epcot and um, Disneyland Anaheim Epcot, uh, the triple seven rollout with 105,000 people in uh, Everett, Washington. Um, but he also, they, I, they did some magazine article uh, interview. Last time I did an interview was 25 years ago or something, 24 years ago. And they happened to interview him. And he explained that what he liked about me was that, that I was always, as I said before, sort of telling the story versus I, I'm never thinking of lighting. I'm thinking of telling a story or if I'm doing a booth or whatever, I'm, I'm trying to work the people through a journey through that booth and have some sort of emotional feeling at the end of it sort of thing, you know? And, and I never, which is just the director, you know what I mean? So as a director, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm always going to tell the story. When I was directing operas, I used to pretend that there was a plexiglass thing between me and the people on stage and because I didn't speak German or Italian and and would I understand the story without that you know and how can lighting help me know where to look you know I mean when, and so I think focus is everything you know um, and it, as far as making the audience feel comfortable enough that they know where they're where they should look but if they want to look away, they're comfortable looking away and they can come back and not feel like they've missed part of the story. So anyway, enough on, geez, that's about lighting. I never talked about it. Oh, that is, that's, a, that's a great uh, philosophy to, to focus on though. I mean, to be able to command where the people are looking is our ultimate goal. Well, I, I think, and that's sort of, I mean, when you look at the different, um, uh, on the bigger shows, I mean, when we started using video mm -hmm. and we had cameras that needed 125 foot candles or something, you know, it wasn't like today, you know, I mean, I was, well, I was doing an Eagles light thing, you know, and uh, Walsh, you know, um, mm -hmm. no, no lights Joe can Walsh. touch him. And yeah, yeah you got to 
make sure that when you're moving lights around, they don't go through his square of eight feet that they had taped out. And then you could use a blue gel at, at uh, eight foot candles or something. And that was, and, and I, I sort of realized that if they just isolated a camera on him and it looked pretty good. I went, Jesus, his cameras are getting just phenomenal, you know? But in the, in the early days, you sort of, you began to see the television was boxing it for you, you know, it was a three by four, mm -hmm. but, it, but it would box it for you. And then, and, you know, in, in, in a primitive way, I mean, we, we use a follow spot to, to be obvious about how we're focusing that light. Right. But really, it's, you know, it's much more subtle than that. And it's like when I said, when, when, when sometimes they don't see the picture, it's that you want the money, the star, I mean, you want it at a half stop, you, you, you want it to be a half stop or three quarters, quarter stop, whatever. Um, and if she's sort of doing a thing or he's, you know, with, with the piano, you want to be, you know, maybe he's a quarter up and, and everybody else is blended out equally, sort of maybe. And then, mm -hmm. and, and, and so as an audience member, I, I feel really, I'm not like, you, you watch people, they get phonetic a little bit if, if, they're not exactly sure what's going on. They don't know what it is, but if right. but if they don't, you know, if they're they're hearing a you know a keyboard over here, you know, something. I mean, if you, if you didn't light the guitar the guitar solo, you know, that's it's confusing to them. Yeah. But you yeah. don't have to light it as we did in the old days because we'd have to blast it to get to 125 foot candles to get that picture or whatever. So anyway, that's a yeah, little it, disjointed. It, it, in the last 20 years, we've really flipped the script on all the designers who've been around that long because it used to, used to be lighting a party for just the people who were attending because there was no video recording. And even if somebody tried to sneak in a video recording device, they would get kicked out of it. You can't have that in here. But now we're only lighting for the recording devices because the 10,000 people in the room pales in comparison to the 800,000 who are going to watch it on their little devices We've really flipped it all together on you. Well, I don't know. We certainly spent many nights debating that exact point, even into the corporate world and a lot of different things. Uh, but, but from a music standpoint, uh, who, who are you lighting for? And you know what? As, as the sort of um, hmm, pragmatist as I am, I tended to light for the camera. Okay. Because six months from now, when the head of events or the president or the corporate person goes, what do we do with that? They put in a tape and that tape becomes their memory, <laughs> not mm -hmm. what happened that night. So mm -hmm. uh, that was always sort of, you know, I mean, I, I wanted to be as absolutely great as possible live. But it was really important to me that I protected the archive. Sounds like you have your priorities straight. Well, just greedy, I guess. Um, <laughs> no, I just, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, so now, uh, after you've been in the isolation period for a little while, do you prefer yeah. working locally or would you still travel far and wide to, to seek work? You know, from a real standpoint, I, I, you know, I mean, I'm about two and a half hours, three hours to San Francisco and about three and a half to LA. Um, and that, I mean, I've done some local stuff here, but I mean, from a real bigger standpoint, um, I don't, 
let me do this just to be continue my off the wall stuff all right so in <laughs> 1968 my father wanted to do a bonding series uh, a bonding sort of trip and um I, I was going to school at uh, john f kennedy in new orleans i'd left the bay area and and i uh, went down there to go to high school in new orleans which was a radical radical change i mean it was uh we we're right in the middle of civil rights we we're right in the middle of a bunch of people that were much different than us kids out there listening to Janis Joplin, but uh, I like jazz, uh, in somebody else's house. Um, anyway, so I, I, I go, we, I, we spent three weeks in Mexico City. It's phenomenal. You know, in 72, we go back to Munich and it sort of becomes this thing. We do, you know, uh, Montreal, our tickets get sent back from Moscow and then basically um la and was the last one that we did together but um and but i mean i went to europe in 69 uh stayed in youth hostels and spent three months in the summer and so travel was just in my veins i mean i just that's what i wanted to do i would have taken any job that i got to travel i think just so happened that i you know have two or three million miles and uh i mean there's times as i got older that you know some of those trips Hopefully, as I got older, I got more business class tickets and lay down seats and whatnot. But, um, you know, which is just, it, it, it's the other sort of, I'm, I'm going to, well, anyway, so, so traveling's in my, so I would travel instantly. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's one of the other sort of sad things about it. So when you're making, you know, in the early days, whatever, when you're making no money, you know, you're buying all your own meals and you're, you know, you're scraping by. And then mm -hmm. as, as you get successful, I mean, they take you to dinner, you know, they fly you. <laughs> when you're making enough money that it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's just kind of upside down. We should, I try to take my cruise to dinner because <laughs> I remember what it was like, you know. That's a great feeling. Oh. It is cool to know that the lighting industry can afford us a certain amount of travel. And there's a lot of people that get into the, just to know that they can go to some rare and exotic places. I think the most important thing, I, I don't know that it would, I mean, it, I mean, this can be a pretty backbreaking, emotionally draining, certainly number of hours sort of business. I, I, I can't imagine if you, if you don't love it, you're going to last very long. I, and also you, the other most important skill is your ability to forget. If you remember that shit load out from Bad Seidenberg in Germany or that 23 hour one in here or where, where we're in Calgary and, and you're slipping and sliding down a ramp in the snow and the ice on the ramp and you know, and you're just miserable because every outdoor show, you know, it snows or rains, you know, I mean, all of that. I mean, uh, picking up the snake that's all covered in mud and everything else that the people have done to it, you know, I, I and then forget it. And then next we time you to. see it. We just, have to be like a I goldfish. Have, we just I, have to keep forgetting how much we we keep getting pounded on. We, there was people out on the road that just could not forget. I mean, they would constantly want to remind you of the shit loadout we'd done or the shit load in or <laughs> where, where something happened. And I said, just get out. If you cannot forget it, get out. You're a miserable <laughs> son of a bitch. You know, leave me alone. 
you make me remember it and I don't want to remember it, you know? <laughs> no, I, I would imagine that's a special power that you have. You're like, no, it's, this is, today's going to be awesome. It's this, it, this optimism that we, we require to keep picking up the same stupid snake. We know it's going to smell like beer every single time, but we still do it every single time. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I, you know, I don't know. I, it, it, I guess those people, you know, some people enjoy misery. So maybe it's the perfect gig for them. It does love company. Uh, that's why the touring family stick together so well. Uh-huh. <laughs> so one of the things that you mentioned was the storytelling. And then you also mentioned that you were lighting during some, some very trying times. I mean, over the course of your career, you've seen different politicians, different movements. Do you, do you use your lighting and your storytelling ability to express your own activism or do you do you use your lighting for to tell to tell your your politics well, i don't know if it's that personal i um and, and i think it's once again thinking as a director i think it's you know it's it's a collective of what everybody i mean the experience is not it, it cannot be broken up i mean the sound needs to be perfect you know i mean the set needs to function i mean the everything and lighting needs to to support and be a part of all of that. So I don't know that necessarily that I, when I think of lighting, I'm thinking that I am specifically doing something in a, in an activist way. But I, but I, probably the most powerful one that I had ever done. It was 1987. We were at the Reichstag in in Berlin, and David Bowie had decided to hire. And I, I think it's Shoko was the. Uh, was a sound company but I, I think Shoko flew in an entire rig and we set it up pointed towards East Berlin and when the thing started I mean there were people all over the roofs hanging out of the windows and when he sang Heroes it was one of the most powerful I mean there wasn't a dry eye in the house I mean it was just oh, stunning I'll never forget that moment and I uh, I used to tell my kids that all the time and uh, my daughter just graduated from Cal and, and uh, early, right? She did it in three and a half years. So I said, hey, you saved me a lot of money. Why don't you go to Europe for five weeks or six weeks or something? So she took off and went to Europe. And when she got to each city, she would hire a uh, tour guide. And she got to Berlin and this guy's taking her through it. And, and it was completely different. You know, when, when I would go, I spent 95% percent of my time in west berlin and five percent in east berlin back in right. the days, you know oh. and she spent about 95 percent in east berlin which is the cool place now and and uh which i have a chance to go to quite a bit i love berlin i'd go tomorrow and uh and then in, in west berlin but um anyway he was going through the whole thing and they got to the rock and he said now there was this thing in 1987 that was the most powerful thing bowie had done this and it was really important for the wall to come down that he had done this and my daughter looked at him and went, but geez, my dad's been telling me that for, you know, 25 years or 20 years or whatever. And, um, but it was, it was that powerful a moment. You could see it on the, on the faces of the people across the no man's land and, and all the rest of it, the people on this side, the relatives, all of that that were there. It was phenomenal, you know. This lighting cue is a part of the folklore there now. Uh, you, you, that, yeah. Yeah, entered into history. Uh, yeah, right. But I mean, it's not. Um, I never think of lighting 
um, in a solo. Uh, I think it. I, I think it is part of the collective of the picture. I don't. It is. I don't think of lighting. It wasn't, and even so, it's really. It, it also sets my communication and and working relationships with around around me because I think set uh -huh. is equally as important. Sound is equally as important. You know, so uh, that that we have the rig in the right place is equally as important. So, I am really a interactive want to make sure everybody because when everybody gets close to what they need we can create something magical you know but if for me yeah, to just fight for my lighting thing then we'll just end up being oh the lighting was good but the rest of it sucked yeah yeah but <laughs> still i mean people like david bowie and roger waters and any of the activist performers they they, they know that part of the way they get their message across is through the lighting, through the set, yes. through the sound. Yes. And it's, it's all part of the storytelling that you're alluding to. Yeah. You know, we did, I, I did Bowie in 83 and then again in 87, kind of every show we did. And I was actually the only person that ever saw every single one. Cause we had different sound engineers and whatnot, <laughs> but I was at every show and, and uh, somebody asked me, did I get bored? And I, uh, I'm trying to, on the last, in the afternoon of the last show, which I can't even remember the city now, I can tell you where we started, but I can't, we, I, we were still um, writing cues and changing stuff. I mean, it was so, so complex. I mean, we'd done 114 shows. This is show 115 or something. And we're still tweaking out little things that you know it was such it was so complex what he was trying to say and sometimes he was just being funny you know i asked him about that big plinth that was laying out and he goes eh, it's so you'll ask what it's for um you know i was he was just marvelous to work with and and uh it was great anyway that's very cool that's very cool uh, we, I've gone way over time. I wasn't even paying attention to the time. I've been spending so much time laughing and giggling and, and just reflecting. I, I want to close with like one last question. I, 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 it's tough to top that one with the, you, you're being a part of history with, with your daughter, but how do you make that decision? Like you've done so many different things from television to rock and roll to corporate and all that. When do you make the decision to like, I'm just going to light for utility. I'm just going to collect the paycheck. And when do you make the decision? Like today's the day I'm going to, today's the day I'm going to make a view, the, the cue that really makes people feel something or, or is that always the goal? Is that a, is that a conscious decision? Hmm. Hmm. I guess the question I'm asking is when are you lighting for utility and when are you lighting for emotion? Well, in, in answer, I, I mean, I, I think, I think pretty pictures can um, make, <laughs> can emotionally move you. Uh, yes. they, they don't have to necessarily be jagged edged or hard. You know, I, I, I can't think of the guy's name, uh, which, which is good because when you get older, you can't remember it anyway. But uh, the guy that said it was sort of a, a, a Alan Brand sort of less is more sort of thing. But but another guy said the definition of perfection. It was some French guy. Uh, is when there it's not when you need to add anything, but when there's nothing left to take away. So I think I am always. I mean, austerity lighting was about the fact um, 
that uh, we went through a period in late, uh, early 90s, sort of mid to late 90s, where a lot of bands were, were cutting back and whatnot. And so I was, I was having to do all these um, cutbacks, you know, lose a dozen Verilites out of the rig or something, you know. And so I, I became known as the austere lighting guy because I was having to do it with all this stuff. So I made up with Ozzy. And so austerity is about <laughs> the cutting back on lighting stuff. But I, I, uh, I, we're over time anyway, so it doesn't really matter. So I'll, I'll say it this way. I think there are people, like if Alan Branton was, was working, right? He would spend whatever amount of time it took on the first song and then next and next and next, right? And I'm, um, I, I go through, if I, if I was doing, I, I do those songs as fast as I can, or I do the room, right? And, and because as a director, I used to do something called hide the duck, right? I would watch a scene in rehearsals and I would determine how, who was quacking or where the duck was or what was the weakest moment in that scene. And then I would go and work on that. So one, I wanted to know that because I did so many things where I had to just do pickups at casinos where that, that I could get through the show alive, right? And then go back and work art. So I, I sort of do it backwards. I, uh, I'm willing, I, I'm a utilitarian in the beginning to make sure that I'm going to get out alive and that the artist will be there. And then depending on how much time I have, um, I'll go back uh, and, and work through you know what's the next you know what's the next week is about what's the what's the you know and if if you get enough time then you have some of those magic moments but there's so often um uh, oh you know i mean you you're sitting there with this bag of for mostly what i do in corporate whatever i mean you're sitting there with a bag of tricks you know certain things work you know, I mean, there's right. going to be certain color combinations. There's going to be that are, that are going to evoke some sort of an emotion. And it's going to also visually change your eye from this, from that moment to this moment or whatever. And so I think you throw out as many of those as you can to sort of get you in and, and be okay. And then, mm -hmm. and then go back and analyze. Yeah, but it's not like you say, it's not connecting them in my opinion, emotionally correctly, you know, it's, it's, it's a interesting look, but it's, it's uh, gratuitous or it's my ego that's wanting it to look that way because I think it looks good, but it's not emotionally correct for what, what the artist is saying or what's going on on stage, you know, and those mm -hmm. are sometimes things you really gotta, especially if you find a really good one. Yeah. The first time you saw the zoom in, zoom out right, with, with the, with the lab, right? Mm -hmm. you can throw that shit on anything right and you still thought it was cool you know right yeah. well it's the same thing you, you know you get this light you think, and then you throw it on top of something <laughs> no that's not gonna work there but it's cool um so i mean i go through all that i guess but uh anyway this has been fun this has been fun the way you I've put never that done was... one before so it was, it was very interesting the way you put that was was perfectly said too. It's like, yeah, you got to get the nuts and bolts done first. You got to do the utility first. That's why we get paid. But then anything above that is art. Anything that's when the more time we're given, the more we can thrive. And that that's a lot of people get that backwards. They they start trying to do the the flashy stuff first, and then they then they go to the utilitarian the utility. 
and that that's where people just get lost so the way you said it was just perfect well, it's been a pleasure meeting you thank you so much ozzy i, I really believe appreciate we it. haven't met really you know but uh over the years <laughs> new friends that's what uh that's what uh, this is all about yeah no i was I've, I've told a couple of people i was going to do this and they go what do you mean you don't know him and i'm like how well, uh, i don't think well, so i don't think hear- we bad so, no we have we, this is we, this is a brand new relationship today we probably passed each other at ldi once or twice but yeah thank you so much for your time ozzy i really appreciate it it's been a pleasure